Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Charlotte Chider, Jaharis Faculty Fellow in Health Law and Intellectual Property at DePaul University College of Law. We will discuss her article, The Consent Myth, Improving Choice for Patients of the Future, which will appear in the Washington University Law Review. So welcome to the program, Charlotte. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here, Brian. Oh, well, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, I always love reading your work, although frequently I don't always understand everything that's in it because so much of what you do is really outside of the areas of law in which I'm a specialist. So I'm especially uh, excited to have you here to explain some of these ideas in a little more detail to someone who's a non-specialist. Like, sure. Thank you. Like like myself. Um, yeah. So uh, I was wondering, just as a way of kind of framing the argument in in the paper, which at least the way I took it was sort of thinking about data privacy in today's technological world. I was wondering if you could kind of give listeners like a potted history of like data regulation in the 20th and early 21st century, just so they have some context as to how things used to be and maybe how the circumstances and challenges are different today. Yeah, I, I certainly can do that. So, you know, longstanding, I guess, privacy history, we talk about uh, common law torts that extended from, you know, the kind of foundational article, the right of privacy that I think most people are familiar with. And, you know, that development, oddly, didn't take off as much as we might have thought it might, given, I think, the popularity of that particular article. So some of the common law tort uh, remedies and some of the statutes we see at the state level really didn't get as much activity as we originally thought. Um, but at the same time, we saw some changes in terms of how both people were living and also uh, the types of data that were collected, how they were used, how they were transferred, um, and the technology that mediated that information, transfer and collection. And so what we started to see in the 1970s was an interest in, you know, in truly what was happening with data, what would the potential impacts to individuals be? And so there were a number of commissions that were started in the early 1970s that started to dig a little bit deeper into, you know, what do we want to do as an American public in relation to privacy? And so that area, I think, spurred, you know, quite a few new statutes at the federal level um, starting with a focus on the federal government, uh, both civil servants, uh, how we handle their information, and then also the general public. Um, and the next kind of area was around credit. So when you are applying for credit or if someone's doing a background check on you, what are they able to get? Um, and how do we ensure that people are aware of what's happening with their information and the decisions being made about them? Oddly enough, and I know that this article is kind of focused in the health space, I think that it might be because we had these longstanding obligations at common law around confidentiality and a development of fiduciary responsibilities that we just didn't see a lot of statutory development uh, at the federal level until much later. What really prompted, I think, in a renewed interest in, for example, uh, HIPAA, you know, the, the health insurance 
Portability and Accountability Act, uh, which was you know, passed in the, the late 1990s. Before that time, you know, a lot of these relationships were pretty local. You knew your doctor, your doctor was maybe a member of your community. And as we started to see more separation between a physician, their patients, and the other players in that system, including insurance providers, um, other operations, organizations, we knew that more had to be done. Um, but the original reason why HIPAA was passed was not really about privacy. It was about something called job lock, uh, where we wanted individuals to be able to um, have continuity in their insurance benefits when they change jobs. We didn't want people to be dissuaded from getting a better job uh, by risking losing their health insurance. So it, we kind of came around it in, in a couple different ways, you know, in the 1970s, because we were starting to get interested more in computerized technologies. We saw this interest at the federal uh, space, more the public space. And then at the same time, we had this interest in insurance. And it was those two things together blended that sort of prompted the development of HIPAA originally. But what's very interesting about HIPAA is that we actually didn't see any specific privacy language uh, developed in that statute until 2003. There were two to three years where different administrations had their kind of their hands in the pot trying to decide how we were going to structure the privacy rule, which is a, a central part of HIPAA today. So it was a very interesting kind of roundabout way of getting to privacy from a health perspective. And, um, you know, something that a lot of people who don't spend a lot of time in privacy maybe don't realize is that privacy from a statutory perspective, not a common law perspective, but, you know, federal regulation is a fairly new concept. Um, this is something that really has been developing over the last probably 30 years, um, at least in large part. Yeah. And one and one thing that struck me about the way you describe the kind of present moment in in your paper is is sort of the way that it seems like the radical virtualization of data as well as the kind of expanding ability that we have to do things with data as it were have created kind of problems or potentialities that that didn't exist previously and i th i was interested in i was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about uh, a phenomenon that you describe in your paper you know this sort of like oft talked about internet of things or you talk about the internet of health things in your paper i was wondering if if you could if you could talk a little bit about what that means and how those new kind of technologies are affecting sort of the salience of data privacy, as it were. Yeah. So when we talk about the Internet of Things, what we generally mean are connected consumer devices. The Internet of Health Things are specific consumer devices that are related to provisioning health care, um, giving health indications, maybe coaching somebody on health-related decision-making. Um, and they are not always medical devices. Um, so a lot of my other writing in the past has been around medical device regulation, cybersecurity, that kind of thing. But the most interesting thing I found in doing a lot of that work is that we're seeing a lot more market investment in the space around consumer health technologies, which really are markedly different from the, the types of technologies that are regulated formally through the Food and Drug Administration um, and el also under HIPAA. And in some cases, medical device manufacturers um, have to adhere to kind of both both sets of, of regulation, rules, code, et cetera. 
So, you know, this, this changing face of connected devices, you know, you've probably heard of the connected hairbrush or, you know, some of these other consumer devices where you say, well, I don't understand why a toaster needs to connect to the internet, right? <laughs> but in the case of a lot of health devices or medical devices, this is a huge advantage. So if you think about it from a market perspective, you don't, so say for um, our aging population, older adults, if a person is able to stay in their home and simply connect to a variety of different devices, say uh, a connected scale, a connected blood pressure monitor, um, and a few other things, maybe uh, an insulin pump or other types of diagnostic tools, that individual probably can stay in their home which has a positive impact not only for that individual and often their prognosis, but also a huge benefit from an economic standpoint because we don't have to pay for um, you know, those kind of intensive care types of environments, which tend to be very expensive. So when we think about these types of devices, you know, a lot of it is convenience. A lot of it is really just taking the functionality of these devices to the next level. And then the other one is sort of taking out of the equation you know, that person to person relationship, which can have really positive impacts, like we're talking about, you know, an individual at home can be monitored by their doctor remotely, they don't have to constantly go into the doctor's office or, you know, be in a a long term care facility. These are a lot of really positive things. The problem, I think, um, is that when we have thought about privacy in the past, it's been sort of based on this foundational trust relationship between people. So the more that you are sort of separating these people um, by, you know, computer mediated technologies, internet enabled technologies, or the internet of things uh, more broadly, it becomes a little bit harder for that individual to really trust what somebody is going to do with their data. Um, For one, they can't directly ask the person if if they did care about it. Um, You know, but secondly, because there are these market benefits, there's also a financial incentive for organizations to collect more information, um, potentially to sell more information, um, and to induce individuals to agree to give their information so that they can use that information for additional purposes. Um, So one of the things I often talk about in relation to the Internet of Things is sort of the changing nature of artificial intelligence and how the Internet of Things are changing as a result of that. Um, and a lot of people hear, you know, artificial intelligence, they think, oh, you know, a sentient being or, you know, the end of the world. But the reality is that most of what we're seeing in terms of artificial intelligence today is just really, really smart uh, data analysis. That's probably the best way I can describe it. Um, there's a utility that runs over very large data sets and finds relationships between data elements and data points that an individual human might not even expect. So if you think about it, it's just a very powerful analytics tool. But if you can understand, for example, what are all of the factors that might influence somebody's prognosis if they have diabetes, you know, or will uh, be the most optimal way to shock somebody's heart if they have a pacemaker, that is tremendously beneficial and also will probably result in a device that functions more effectively and can also be sold at a you know, higher cost and be more competitive. The point here is that, that that data collection not only is central to what we're seeing as the evolution of technology and artificial intelligence, but also that there is a market incentive to collect it. And if you combine that with the fact that people are increasingly distanced from those personal relationships, we end up kind of having a problem. Um, in terms of the incentives for collecting that data 
and some challenges in how we actually communicate what we plan to do with it. Yeah. So in, in your, in your paper, you acknowledge these like potential functionality benefits associated with additional data collection, but suggest that there may be costs associated or potential costs associated with it as well. And I was wondering if you could like talk about maybe some concrete examples of how that might work um, and also talk about the nature of those costs. I mean, do you see it as primarily like, like economic or kind of like market risk or primarily like the potential for dignitary harms um, or some combination thereof? Yeah, I would say, you know, primarily we're talking about, you know, dignitary harms. We're talking about potential harms to an individual's autonomy and that they're not able to make decisions about themselves. Um, You know, when we look back at common law privacy and even what we've seen recognized um, under the Constitution with the Fourth Amendment, for example, um, you know, we're ta- we were talking more about bodily privacy, physical privacy, um, aspects that are kind of directly related to a person's physical appearance or, or perhaps their image. When we're talking about informational privacy, it is a, a little bit different. Um, the types of harms we're talking about are usually related to uh, the ability of an individual to make decisions about that data. But often I get the question, well, what kind of harm is that? You know, just having, you know, not being able to make decisions about your data, is that in and of itself harm? And something that I I explain to some degree in my paper is just the the relationship between privacy and autonomy and how even informational privacy can be very central to a person's sense of, of dignity especially in the health context, which I think is a very you know, unique scenario, being able to um, maintain your own information, make decisions about data related to your health is, I think, one of the very first areas where we, we actually saw a dignitary right from a privacy perspective. And it was kind of part of why um, you know, HIPAA was passed with the idea that a privacy rule would be forthcoming. So I think that's one. <laughs> And then from an economic perspective, you know, I think we've, we've tried to have this conversation, um, a scholarly conversation about sort of the economic value of that data. But I will tell you that at least in common law courts, we're really not seeing a lot of support, um, you know, for that model. This idea that, you know, well, if I could sell my personal information or my protected health information under HIPAA, you know, what kind of money could I get out of it? We have seen a lot less success in that, but it certainly could be part of the equation. You know, there's certainly value in information. Yeah, well, especially when it came to the dignitary side of things, it struck me that you know you 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 have this distinction between consent and choice, and it seemed to me mm-hmm. that 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 distinction or that dialectic really expressed a lot of the sort of the difference the autonomy difference that you're sort of talking about. Yes. Am I right there? Yes, you definitely are right there. And and I think, you know, something happened along the way. And in the paper, I I kind of proposed that that might have happened in the early 2000s because we came to be so reliant on this consent mechanism as like a procedural manifestation of, of choice that it's sort of mashed together. You know, we saw those two concepts uh, intertwined where consent became choice. And I think one of the, the big points I'm trying to make in the article is that 
there are lots of ways that we can, that an individual can manifest choice outside of simply consent, you know, in a, in a traditional model where a privacy notice is presented to the, the user, the consumer patient, and then they click, I agree, right? Because there are a lot of complexities associated with um, being able to make a decision based on, you know, just the information that's in front of you like that, which is kind of what I talk about with the consent myths. Yeah. So maybe you could like walk through those a little bit. You know, you, you talk about the consent myth or the really consent myths because you, you sort of identify five sort of categories of ways in which consent is not equivalent to to choice. Maybe you could explain a little bit, you know, sort of why why that is and sort of what's missing from from mere consent. Yeah. So so kind of the first one I think is one that you know, most folks who are familiar with contract law know is kind of this longstanding issue. Um, and privacy notices are not necessarily identified as contracts, properly speaking. Um, you know, sometimes privacy language is included in terms of use agreements. But regardless of whether we're saying, you know, this is a legally enforceable contract in the traditional sense, um, it does represent a level of commitment that an organization is making to a particular consumer. Um, and that consumer in agreeing is to some degree agreeing to what those commitments are. Um, so actually what we've often seen at the Federal Trade Commission, for example, is when information that is presented in the privacy notice is manifestly incorrect, that may result in a, a cause of action um, that the FTC levies against another organization. Um, and so this, this is kind of a, a common way, a common way to kind of think about it, I guess. Um, but the consent myth one is really about contracts of adhesion and the problems with that. Um, similar to terms of use agreements, privacy notices are not really negotiable, at least in their current state. So you have an organization that's providing the same privacy notice to a variety of different people. Now, in and of itself, we know the contracts of adhesion, you know, they might be at least slightly problematic, but we also know that we've characteristically been okay with contracts of adhesion and, you know, with some limitations, because we know that from a market perspective, it's simply not efficient to have individual bargaining with each individual person, right? Especially if you're an, an organization who's offering a service to a variety of different people. Um, and so we know that this is kind of an inherent problem. I think the, the challenge that we see here is that, um, you know, effectively finding a defensive you know, unconscionability would be fairly difficult in these cases, often because privacy notices are not really written in such a con, well, I would say usually they're very clear, but the language that is communicated is not necessarily easy to understand. So it kind of rides a line between, um, you know, I'm not going to say procedural unconscionability, substantive unconscionability related to how easily understandable those privacy notices are. So I won't go into, you know, too much detail here. And, you know, indeed, the article doesn't go into a lot of detail on that particular point, other than to say privacy notices, we know that there's a contract of adhesion that's, that's happening. So already a person doesn't really have a meaningful choice. So that just is a very base question. When you can't bargain, you know, your only choice is to walk away. And in the health sector, that becomes problematic because in some cases, an individual actually needs whatever type of device they're using um, or whatever kind of service they're using. 
So for example, um, insulin pumps, uh, either a monopoly or an oligopoly in terms of what's, what's available to you. If an individual mm-hmm. says, I don't want to sign this, you know, this uh, privacy notice, I don't agree. Are they going to just not have a, an insulin pump? You know, that's not, that's not really a, a good alternative. Um, so there is kind of a distinction here between, you know, what are really necessary types of services and products and just general consumer products. Yeah. And you, it seems like you suggested in, in the paper too, that it's also like a lack of context that patients have to be able to meaningfully consent when they don't actually understand sort of what the actual uses of the data might be, or even like potentially could be at some point in the future. Exactly. And, and I call that a cognition problem. So in the past, um, cognition problems have been more around the language use. So there were these movements towards plain language in privacy notices. Uh, I think the contention I'm making is that sometimes even when the language is plain, even when it's written at the appropriate grade level, we're talking about something that is highly abstract. <laughs> you know, data handling processes and the legitimacy of those, pra- of those practices can be very, very difficult to communicate. And in fact, a lot of privacy experts have actually looked through privacy notices and tried to discern what they really mean. You know, how indicative are they of actual data handling practices? And often it's even difficult for people who are experts in this field to really understand what they mean. So you're right. I mean, even if, so let's say, for example, uh, an individual could bargain. And secondly, that they had time to do so. We know from data that it would take an average, I think, of 76 days out of an entire year uh, for you to actually do this meaningfully with every privacy notice or privacy policy you come in contact with. So assuming that you can bargain and you have the time, um, I guess the assertion I'm making is that it's still difficult to understand it. It's inherently difficult to understand it. And so expecting individuals to, again, be able to make meaningful choice about some meaningful choices about things that are you know, fairly latent in in nature or are are kind of difficult to understand, you know, abstracted, um, I I don't think is a fair expectation. So it's a kind of another defect in our current model. Yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that term latency that you use in the paper and how it figures into this uh, consent choice dichotomy. I can. And, And actually, recently, I've been using the term exogeneity as sort of an alternative, but basically what I mean by either one of those, um, latency being more of a technical term for how we we think about delays and um, kind of data processing, exogeneity being more about things that are outside of kind of the realm of what you would, you would normally expect and understand um, within your circumstance. So when I, when I think about that term, I think what is it that a person could possibly imagine and reasonably expect at the moment when they're signing a privacy notice? And the challenge, I think, is that, and bringing it back to the you mentioned before, Brian, is this concept that you know data transfers a lot of different places. There might be third parties and subcontractors of third parties and subcontractors of subcontractors who are handling data on behalf of the original uh, entity. You might have different practices that are, I would say, highly complex, highly technical. So if we're talking about 
how an artificial intelligence utility, like a machine learning utility runs, or if we're talking about cybersecurity practices, these are the types of things that require a level of technical skill to even ask the right question. So it's a combination of sort of distance and complexity in data location and data processing with technical complexity. And so when an individual, you know, taking this from the position of an individual consumer is looking at a privacy notice, they may not even know enough to ask the question that would reveal additional information that could be risky to them is kind of the concept of um, exogeneity or, or latency in relation to this problem. So just, you know, what could you reasonably contemplate when you're actually looking at a notice? Um, it's really outside of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and another kind of aspect of the way you kind of frame the nature of the problem made me kind of wonder, like, I mean, is the primary concern here, like outcomes, like do consumers kind of get better care or avoid like harms of some kind in the future? Or, or is it more about kind of the process of people understanding their relationship to the people with whom they're sharing data about themselves? So that, that's an excellent question. And, and I think it is the second, right? The focus of privacy law often is how do we arm people with the right information to be able to make meaningful choices? Um, and again, it is more about autonomy and just the, the value of an individual being able to, to some degree, make decisions about the data that is intrinsically about them and is personal in nature. At the same time, um, you know, and, and I think you probably would see this with some of the recommendations I'm making as well. We, we can't divorce this concept of kind of personal autonomy from the world in which that lives, meaning that we're talking about often consumer products, which means that we, we have to work within to some degree the market. And so the types of recommendations we make have to balance those interests, keeping in mind that often, uh, you know, effective market operation is going to be beneficial for individual consumers. Um, and this was a question that I got originally in um, developing this paper was, are there situations where actually we think the benefit to the individual is worth them not really knowing what's going on at all? Mm. You know, and my response at the time was, well, I believe that it's a balance. You know, there's a degree to which you, you know, you need to equip an individual with the information to be able to make you know, those types of choices. But yes, there is a trade-off, you know, in some cases for greater utility, you won't be able to invest as much in enhancing autonomy. And so the recommendations that I make try and kind of balance those factors, knowing that we, we operate in the real world and that these are consumer products. Yeah. So maybe you could talk a little bit about those recommendations, because I think they're really helpful in sort of conceptualizing how we might talk more productively about the sort of informed consent and choice in the concept in the context of of medical medical data collection sure and uh, you know I call this a choice first privacy model but really it's it's a sort of an opportunity I think to engage with the ideas you know I'm not 100% certain that this is the you know the exact way to go but it's a way to sort of start the conversation and think about things a little bit differently. Um, and, one, and one of those principles is that initiating service should be non-coercive. And this is something that I think is actually primary. You see it in um, you know, a fair amount of other international laws, the general data protection regulation being one of them. 
that if you're just starting a service, if you are just, um, for example, uh, getting your Fitbit to start, the information that you agree to give the Fitbit manufacturer should be reasonably expected based on the service. So what might that be? Uh, Probably is your information for registration purposes. It might be information about your heartbeat or your heart rate um, or other features that are inherent in that particular device. But there might be other types of things that um, that organization wants to collect from you. For example, GPS information is, is a common one uh, or other information about your buying habits. What are you eating? Um, other types of things that are sort of outside of the core operations of that particular technology. So I like to separate those into the concept of primary uses, so the things that are directly connected to the service, and secondary uses, which are uses that are kind of beyond what the individual user would expect. So when I say kind of non-coercive in this context, um, you know, realizing that all, to some degree, contracts of adhesion are coercive to some extent, right? Um, What I mean by coercion here is that you haven't bundled together in your privacy notice both primary uses and secondary uses, So for example, if you want to take all of that Fitbit data, you want to sell it to a third party um, and it's identifiable in nature, you know, it's not anonymized information. um, That is a type of thing that is kind of beyond the scope of what a person would naturally expect in getting a Fitbit. It would be something that would not be permitted according to principle one. And then principle two is really connected to those secondary uses or those additional uses. And the idea here is that I want to create an environment where individuals meaningfully engage in that exchange. So we've kind of trained people in providing very long privacy notices just not to read them at all. Assumption Mm -hmm. is that the organization is doing the right thing, but in reality, there are a lot of hidden terms in those notices uh, characteristically. So if instead we say, okay, we're not going to require consent when they are primary uses, you know, when it's reasonably expected, we think people are smart enough to know that the information in their device is going to be used for those purposes, right? Mm, Yeah. But if there are other types of uses, we need to communicate those in a more salient way. So instead of just saying, hey, boom, here's the privacy notice, say yes, instead engage them in a way that is going to invite some level of bargaining or uh, will help that individual appreciate the risks and understand the motivations behind that data collection or use. And so, you know, one of the ways that I talk about that is this concept of a bargain. So actually labeling it as a proposal, um, you know, kind of saying, hey, we're willing to offer you this for this, keeping it short and being very specific about, again, the risks to the individual. So what might happen if you give this information? Well, you know, if you're giving this information for purposes of selling it to a third party, we may not know what that third party does with the information. For example, that might be a risk. Um, And then, and then additionally, we could pair it with other incentives. I I know at least when I've brought this up in the past, uh, there's been some concern over that concept of incentives, right? Do we want people to be able to be paid for highly sensitive information. Um, and maybe and maybe we don't in some circumstances. If information is highly sensitive, you know, we want people to donate that data, you know, data philanthropy, um, or, you know, maybe in other circumstances, we're okay with, with people being compensated. But the idea is that it's actually 
you know, we would actually communicate, this is what we're going to use the data for. And here's why it's a benefit to us, because we can sell it for a profit, for example. So it's sort of a different way of engaging that is less passive than what we've seen in the past. And because there could be certain offerings or, um, you know, kind of other rewards, I guess, for sharing data for those purposes, hopefully that individual is going to stop long enough to engage and actually bargain. Um, and we want to make sure that, of course, organizations are playing by the rules. So they shouldn't be, you know, overly annoying and blocking basic service, you know, service um, capabilities. Like your Fitbit shouldn't turn off, you know, until you're done doing the proposal. You know, you should have continuous service. It shouldn't affect any of those pieces. So it's a little bit complex, but the, you know, the, the main idea here is separating primary and secondary uses and finding more novel ways to engage the consumer when we know that data might be used for purposes that they wouldn't expect. Yeah. It also seemed like you were suggesting that maybe like it shouldn't be like a one-time thing, like, you know, you consent and that's it, but that there would be some sort of like ongoing sort of relationship between the data gatherer and the kind of data provider, <laughs> I guess, as it would be under the circumstances, sort of as the relationship changes that they would need to have additional interactions with the company? Yes, exactly. So it's very unusual, especially when we're talking about contemporary, you know, healthcare, whether those are devices or person-to-person uh, -person relationships, that we're talking about a one-time thing. Most of the time, this is an ongoing service. And because it's an ongoing service, we need to find ways to better enhance what kind of historically was that person-to-person -person, um, relationship. So we know that now we won't have necessarily a person-to-person -person relationship. We might have a person-to-organization relationship or a person-to-technology relationship. Um, but we know that conditions of trust you know, become a little bit more fragmented when you start to add technology and you pull people further apart. So because of that, one of the ways we can think about um, approaching this question is uh, developing user interface-based controls, user preferences, enabling the user to make kind of just-in-time decisions and reverse decisions they've made in the past. Uh, we call mm. past um, consent revocation and also privacy by design, I know, has, has been used because of the general data protection regulation. Um, certainly, um, Professor Ari Waldman and Professor Woodrow Hartzog have both talked about kind of design-based controls. And so, I mean, this is something that I think is a very popular idea anyway, um, you know, at least contemporarily. But from a principal perspective, I think it's coupling these concepts with the other two kind of covers all of the bases, right? At the moment when you have created service, We've separated primary and secondary uses. We've engaged the person meaningfully. And then now that we have the relationship, we recognize this is an ongoing relationship and give the individual the ability to make more decisions ongoing so that it's not that they just make a decision once and that's it. They have an opportunity to go back and make different decisions if they so choose um, and potentially forego any additional benefits that they might have gotten in the past as a result. So we realize that all these pieces kind of fit together. Um, but this is a little bit challenging. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I mean, even the concept of uh, design-based UI and, and privacy can be difficult because, you know, if data are not managed properly, not labeled properly, you may not be able to get back something that you've already given. 
So if you send data mm. to a third party, if you don't know who you sent it to and you don't know whose data, you know, is whose, it becomes, it becomes difficult to kind of undo what you've done. So that is a central concept that, you know, I think will be an adjustment for a lot of manufacturers, organizations, service providers. Yeah. So I guess in closing, Charlotte, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of where you see these sort of conceptual or kind of uh, practice-based reforms, data practice-based reforms uh, occurring. You know, do you see it primarily as about industry norms, uh, about government regulation, or some some combination of of the two? And sort of what should consumers keep in mind or be be aware of as they sort of see this debate hopefully play out and want to participate in it? Yeah. So first, I should say that that's likely the the next paper. So anything that I'm that I'm sharing are kind of some early some early thoughts. Um, this is initially sort of the type of model we might want to think about. Exactly how we accomplish that can be done a lot of different ways. Um, you know, personally, I would like to see some substantial reforms to HIPAA, and I'm probably not the first person who has said that. Um, but HIPAA was drafted at a time when we did not have the current technology imprint that we have now. We didn't have artificial intelligence in, in the same way we do now. We didn't have this prevalence of connected devices, et cetera. Um, and HIPAA is very narrowly tailored to very specific organizations, which means that some devices that have health data and are using collecting health data, uh, you know, will not fall under HIPAA. In fact, this is happening more often. So I could see some of these principles being baked into a newer version of HIPAA that is sufficiently broad to cover more of um, these types of new health relationships. I'd also like to see some development even on the FTC side. So this or you know this paper was designed more for the health sector, focusing on health because hey, if we can't get it right for health, we're probably not going to get it right other places. But I would see this type of a model also working for, you know, broader privacy uh, notions around choice uh, as the FTC sees it and in particular I would like to see um, a walking back of this concept of consent as choice which is what we have actually seen in some of the FTC documents, although I do think their thinking is starting to evolve um, with the influence of what the rest of the world is doing. So, you know, I'm not advocating for kind of a brand new law or anything like that here, but I, I do think it means some substantial reforms in the model we currently have. Yeah, great. Well, Charlotte, it's been great talking to you and I've learned a ton. Yeah, thank you so much, Brian. It was a lot of fun. I got the hospitality, hospitality blues. I guess I'm just an old country hick, but all you folks that think you're sick better pay attention to what I've got to say. If you were gonna go to some hospital, I suggest you think it over a little, cause I'm still recuperating from my hospital stay. Back about a couple of months ago, I had a little touch of lumbago and I called on my doc to see what he'd suggest. 
And he said, man, it's plain to see the hospital's the place you ought to be because what you need is good old-fashioned rest. Now, by the next morning, I felt pretty good, but I thought I had to go since he said I should, and I got to the hospital long about quarter till ten. Well, I got myself lost without much ado. Everybody I asked said they were lost, too. Those halls and doors just seemed to have no end. The woman that admits you told me I was late, turned right around and said, have a seat and wait, so that's what I did for about two hours and a half. This making you wait, they got perfected. I got the feeling I was being neglected till this man came up and said something about private or staff. From the questions he asked in that interview, I figured he was sent by the revenue, and if I couldn't have talked, I don't reckon they'd let me in. When he found out about my financial affairs, this nurse came in and took me upstairs and gave me a bed and a ward with two other men. Then she gave me this hospital gown to put on, and I figured she must not have thought I was grown. That thing was so short I had to leave on my pants. When those other men told me what they had, my chances of getting any rest looked bad, cause one had consumption, the other to St. Vitus dance. Just about time I got settled in bed, this boy in white walked up and said, I'm Dr. Smith and I gotta run some blood tests. I said, wait a minute, fella, there's some mistake. My blood's all right, I just got the backache, and we had a big argument, and I come out second best. Now, he said he was a doctor, and I don't guess he'd lie, but I'm sure that the back of his ears weren't dry, and when I called him an intern, he said he wasn't that far yet. Everybody that's a doctor has to learn to be, but I don't like it much when they're learning on me, and from the way he was working, that's far as he'd ever get. After he'd taken all the blood I could spare, he got a sheet of paper and pulled up a chair and said, What brought you here? And I told him my 35 Ford. He must have asked me a million questions more about every kind of sickness I'd had before, and every question that I asked him, he just ignored. Ain't Susie died of dropsy, but I'll never know what the devil that's got to do with lumbago, and the questions about my private life made me mad. When he finally got off of that talking jag, he pulled out a little black doctor's bag and gave me the darnest physical I ever had. He beat on me with a hammer and tickled my feet and did some things I better not repeat, and about the time he finished, another boy in white walked in. I found out that he was an intern there, and I want you to know he pulled up a chair and we went through that whole darn mess again. By the time I'd repeated my every disorder, I felt just like a tape recorder, and I asked him if the main doctor even knew I was there. He said, why do you ask? And I said, heck, if you don't hurry up, I'll be a nervous wreck. Then he said the main doctor was at a medical meeting somewhere. For the next four hours after his exam, I got a brain wave and one of them cardiograms and an x-ray picture of every bone in my body, I reckon. Whoever fixed my tray thought I was on a diet. There wasn't enough there to keep a small bird quiet, and it was made to taste so you wouldn't ask for seconds. As if I hadn't done seen enough action, those doctors came back and put me in traction, and the weights were so heavy they pulled me out of bed three times. By then, my back was really hurting, and when they put me on a board, I knew for certain that their definition of rest was different from mine. Well, they left the room and I was dozing off, then the man with consumption started to cough and that other fellow started having some sort of chill. When they finally got quiet, I dozed off again and in a little while that nurse was back in and woke me up just to give me a sleeping pill. About five minutes after the nurse had gone, somebody down the hall cut a radio on and so I rocked and rolled for the rest of the night. About six the next morning, that boy was back in, put a tube in my stomach and drew blood again, and the nurse gave me a shot that knocked me out like a light.
When I came to, I thought I was in a tomb. Found out they were taking me in the operating room. And I figured if I didn't talk fast, my goose was cooked. Well, it took me quite a bit of yelling and cursing to make them realize they had the wrong person and I was fighting to get my arms and legs unhooked. Well, I jumped up from there and I must have looked cute running down the hall in my birthday suit, but I won't worry about my dress not being too formal. Well, I got to my room and put my clothes on and without a goodbye, I headed for home and after two whole months, I still ain't back to normal. Now, if it offers any sort of consolation... If you're half dead or need an operation, then you go ahead, cause man, you got nothing to lose. But if just a little rest is all you need, then if you go there, it's guaranteed you'll get the hospitality blues. Mm -hmm. 